Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Fertan Dathia. In this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome Jill Drader. Jill is a renowned public speaker, award-winning entrepreneur, and professional mentor based in Calgary, Alberta. With over two decades of experience in the personal development industry, Jill has become a trusted advisor and spiritual director to countless individuals and organizations seeking to transform their lives and achieve their goals. Jill is known for her dynamic and engaging speaking style, and she has delivered keynote speeches and workshops to audiences of all sizes across North America. She has also worked with various clients, including corporations, nonprofits, and individuals. Jill founded Owlseek in 2022 to bring back her retreats, workshops, digital courses, and spiritual direction work. Jill is an active member of the Calvary community and has been involved with several charitable organizations. She's the co-founder of Struggle Is Your Success, a Calvary nonprofit teaching youth entrepreneurial mindset skills to improve their lives. She is passionate about supporting causes related to mental health and wellness and has been recognized for her contributions to these areas by the provincial government, the distinguished alumni by the University of Calgary in 2016, and also was awarded the top 40 under 40. Jill is a firm believer in the power of connection and community and is dedicated to helping others build meaningful relationships in their personal and professional lives. Whether speaking to a room of hundreds or working one-on-one with a client, Jill's mission is always the same, to help people live their best lives and reach their full potential. On this podcast, I've previously talked about the hero's journey and something we must all embark on and go through various stages. In this episode, I wanted to highlight Jill's journey. And in this episode, Jill and I discuss her journey through life and some of the choices she made early on which ultimately led her to realize the changes she needed to make, especially after some frightening situations. Jill then talks about some of the entrepreneurial ventures she went on while believing in her vision. We then talk about how Jill now mentors others and gives back to the community through her work. I really hope you get a lot out of this episode. And if at the end of the episode, you can leave a five-star review, I would truly appreciate it. And please check out the show notes on how to find Jill online. All right, Jill, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really honored and looking forward to our conversation. As usual, before I get started with the conversation, I try to give the guests an opportunity to introduce themselves and tell the listeners a little bit about what they do and um, yeah, so I'll hand it over to you for a bit here, introduce yourself, and then we'll jump into our conversation today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about things that are so passionate to me, the world of mental health and healing and living in that space. So my name is Jill Drader, and I am the founder of Owl Seek. And Owl Seek is a program that I've come up with in response to the last 15 years of coaching startups and counseling individuals and working in the recovery space and being in the recovery space and finding this gap of the overlap of life coaching meets business coaching meets career guidance meets creating an actionable plan for yourself and looking at spirituality in your life and the role that that plays. And I believe these are all intertwined. So Owl Seek is broken into two terms. Owl is the inner wisdom, that place inside yourself. And Seek is about all the outside resources that we look for and put in place and often escape and distract with. And sometimes we get so involved in that world of seeking outside of ourselves that we forget to go within and check if this is really aligned with where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, does Owl Seek offer all those services? Like what kind of services does Owl Seek offer? Right. So I've been doing retreats for people. I started them um, in 2016 for people in recovery like myself who hit a 10 year milestone 
in sobriety or in removing a substance of their choice and getting to that place of what's my life like now? I'm not sure if these traditional small groups I've been in are aligned with the direction and counseling and resources I need for that big piece moving forward. So what I found on the retreats was people were really, I did two years of analysis. People were really looking for that all encompassing lens of their own life and speaking into from somebody else, asking questions that you don't just get down one track in therapy. You don't just get um, somebody to see all the pieces and ask about all the pieces. Generally in psychology, you have to stick to that track. If you're in spiritual direction, you have to stick to that track. If you're talking to somebody about startup, it's probably rare that they're going to ask about where's your spirituality lie. Right. And so I, I really looked and said, this is not holistic enough. And how can we address what people really need? A look at all of these pieces together, and then they can go ask the professionals the right questions because they've narrowed down and eliminated what doesn't serve them. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for explaining that. And for listeners, Jill's based in Calgary, so local, and uh, I'll seek is a program that's also offered locally. So, so thank you for sharing that. And and one of the things, you know, like say this quite a bit on this podcast is quite often we find or we create these things because we feel like at some point in our lives we needed it ourselves and to your point as you mentioned something that you went through um, recovery itself do you mind expanding on what that journey was like and and what got you to this point yeah so what I've developed with Owlseek are is this program that I can do coaching one-on-one or I can roll it out in a retreat over the weekend or I can take a corporate group through or I can deliver it in a digital online program. And I have all of those services available right now. But it's bigger than that. It's about having bigger conversations and it's about reaching people in these circles and clicks that we end up getting into. And so my recovery journey... What happened was I was living a double life and I was a functioning addict. And so in 2005, I got to the end of my university degree at the University of Calgary studying international development and African studies. And I really look back now and I was looking for a geographical cure for my alcohol addiction. Um, So I Mm. picked a degree where I could travel and I just ran away from myself. However, everywhere I went, there I was. And that ended in me going to the UFC um, counseling service. And the counselor there had one session with me and he said, well, why don't you try this group Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, not a chance, not doing it. It's not for me. So I guess there's nothing. And Mm -hmm. I just went and hid some more. The truth was in my fourth year, um, I missed the last two weeks. I was in treatment for the third time. a government treatment program. I'd been through a treatment program with my mom's work also. And I just was unwilling to change. I thought I could manage it differently. I was now using cocaine six days a week. I was living a complete double life. I was working over in a motel, hotel um, bar in Hotel Village. And Mm -hmm. that's now all been bulldozed because that whole culture and environment had to go. But it was a really dirty, seedy environment. And organized crimes... Um, motorcycle gangs ran trafficking out of there. They ran women out of the hotel that they could see from the windows of the establishment. They would meet men, take money, and then send them to a room. And I knew all of this was happening. And I was exchanging drugs to stay quiet and let them do this. And this was the culture of the bar. So I didn't know going to work there, that's what happened. But I got into it. And Mm -hmm. it worked for me. That was my life between 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. the next day. I was staying awake for days on end, and my body was shutting down. I ended up getting my degree, but I didn't go to the convocation. I didn't finish with my class. I actually never knew anyone in my class. I just stayed really isolated. And I decided I had to move to Korea. 
Um, I figured if I moved somewhere where I thought cocaine was so illegal, I wouldn't want to access it for fear of being incarcerated for a long time. And I went on this fear based mission. What happened was I ended up being blackout blind drunk for four months, the first four months I was there because I didn't know how to drink without using cocaine. And Mm -hmm. I got myself in a lot of trouble. I was blacking out. I was getting injured. I was hanging out with people I had no business hanging out with. I was lying. I was meeting people and dating them, good people. And I was struggling with this double life. And I really ruined all relationships I had. And then I was just on the rock, South Korea, they call the rock, um, having my rock bottom. And, you know, I was in a city of 9 million people and never felt more alone. And then one Mm. Friday night, I went out by myself, as I did. It's a massive drinking culture there. It's a very big um, demographic of people who go to this region called Taiwan, which is incredible. It's international. It's um, the smoking pot diplomats, teachers like I was. I was teaching in a university prep program. Um, An ex-military or military go hang out there. There's still, you know, 100,000 troop in and around Seoul from the American military since the end of the Korean War. And one night I went out and I just met the wrong person. I was powerless and I gave my power to somebody who I met in the bar. And I think I was given the date rape drug, DHB, or I drank to blackout. But the next thing I remember was them stuffing me into a car in the alley. And that ended up being um, 48 hours. I was taken by this individual. From that period of me remembering being put into the car. The next time I woke up, I was in this really rundown apartment that was rented off base, I found out later. Um, It was an American military person who was not working at the time, but identified and could go on base. And I was bound and I was being videotaped and I was being beat up for somebody else's pleasure. And that's truly where I was powerless. And it's where I realized I just might not make it out of this one. And that was the end of my drinking and using. So help us understand like afterwards, after that, you know, first of all, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. But, you know, after that whole situation, what was going through your head? Like, what were the questions you were asking yourself? You know, like, I'm just trying to, I can't even put myself in that situation. But the first question would come to my mind is like, okay, well, what am I doing here? Was that, you know, it was more like, Jill, how did you get here again? Mm -hmm. You know, the narrative internally had shifted, like, you know, better, Jill, you, you shouldn't be here. You know, I was listening to that inner dialogue that was trying to get my attention. That was my inner self. That was my soul self trying to tell me that there's another way. And I heard it and I could differentiate those voices and I chose to ignore it for so long. So what happened was um, I went out on a Friday night, the Sunday evening, I kind of came to and this person was sleeping and I wasn't as bound as I was before. I was very, very confused. I was very out of it, but I got myself up and I got myself dressed and I tiptoed around. I couldn't find my other things, my cell phone, my money. And I left and I ran into the street and I didn't know where I was. There was a language barrier. I could sound things out phonetically, but I didn't know what they meant. And, and then what I call an earth angel pulled up and it was a taxi driver. And I looked beat up. I looked like I'd been out for two days and hadn't had a shower. I looked like I was a mess. And he picked Mm. me up anyway. And we couldn't even communicate. And I was telling him my address. And I thought he was hearing me. But he assumed I was American. And to get onto the American military bases there, you have to go to this border patrol and check in with your passport. And if you're Canadian, you go in with somebody else. This was at the time. And so he just kind of left me at the gate. And I was like, okay, well, they can help me. And I started to explain what happened and that I needed help. And I started to describe what happened. And they put a few people together 
And then we went and had some conversations and they kind of put together the details before I did. And what I wanted to do was stuff it and run away and hide. I wanted mm -hmm. to make this never known. I wanted to make sure that, you know, I wish rape and abuse were part of my story one time, but they're not. They're not. Mm. I lived a very high risk lifestyle and I was around very dangerous people and I was very addicted to drugs. And with that, you do things you're not proud of. You do things right. because you just need to get through the next day. And okay. I kind of accepted that this was just part of the life, unfortunately. Right. And I accepted that I was so ashamed and humiliated by right. the behaviors that if I just stayed quiet and put the mask on and pretended everything was okay and I went out into the world with the smile and the face and not revealing that darkness behind the scenes of what's really going on, mm -hmm. that I would be okay. And that's what yeah. I did. The military personnel and I came up with some paperwork where I would leave it in their hands because I didn't want to talk about this. And furthermore, I have six men standing in front of me and I didn't want to talk about it with them. Right. And they introduced me to a social worker and women there, um, some medical services. And it's at that point I got into recovery. I never drank after that. And that was 17 years ago this coming April. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a lot. And <clears throat> and what was that journey like of recovery? Because I could assume it was probably hard in the beginning, especially, you know, mentioning that you had that those addictions. What were what were those early days like for you? Painful, <laughs> painful. I learned something called the serenity prayer, and I think I said it a million times. Um, I was introduced to a group of people who are in recovery, that follow a program, that meet. Um, in Korea at the time, this group was not established in English, and the only meetings for this were on the American military base, and I got to go to those. And the early days were complete surrender and just knowing that it was done. I knew that if I was to continue, I was to die next time. I right. had put myself in situations before. Um, I've been held at gunpoint. I have been forced to do things against my will. I have been forced to do things with my body against my will. And those things seemed manageable until this experience that was unmanageable. And I knew I wouldn't come out of the next one. And one of my greatest teachers told me, you know, we're not powerless, but we give our power away. And it was at this point I heard her. She was deceased, but I heard her saying, now you can take it back. And that's what I always knew about giving your power away and being powerless is in that flow of infinity, you can also take it back. It gets log jammed kind of in the middle if you stop the flow, but you can take right. it back because we will be powerless and powerful all day long. Mm. We have thoughts that make us powerful and we have thoughts that make us feel powerless until mm. we really think about that. And that's part of the balance and that's part of the learning and that's part of laying down prejudice and that's part of surrender is acknowledging right. that we're not all knowing and we're not all powerful. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And, and, and then after that, I think, you know, your journey obviously changed quite a bit. You accomplished quite a bit. Um, I was fortunate enough to sit through some of the things you were sharing. So if you, if you don't mind sharing some yeah. of the things you were able to accomplish after that, because I think that's really inspiring. Yeah, so I stayed in Asia for um, almost another year. And mm -hmm. I just really built this persona that, you know, I wasn't good and now I'm good and nobody really needs to know why. I decided to take this to the grave. I decided mm -hmm. nobody needed to know this. I'm just going to come back different. And it was on Chinese New Year. My mom had been living in Toronto and I was still over in um, Korea or Japan. And she had said, let's meet in Vancouver. I could fly there on one flight and she could fly there on one flight and we met. And I'd been gone about a year and a half at this point. I went to India for the first part of that trip and then over to Korea. And uh, 
she said, you know, I went to see this psychic and they told me this thing happened to you. And she explained the whole situation. And I sat dumbfounded because I had decided this story was not coming out. Furthermore, mm. who was this guy to tell her the details of this? Yeah. And I lied to her. I said, no, that didn't happen because I wasn't ready. I had stuffed this. And it wasn't until a year after that um, when I did come home. I did establish a community for myself here in recovery. I did connect with um, people to keep me well and accountable. I got a job at Bow Valley College right away, and I was in my early 20s because academically on paper, things were good. They worked out. Mm. It was the mask I could wear. It was, oh, but look at this. I'm accomplished. <laughs> yeah. I, I can do this. And so I was teaching at Bow Valley College, and I hated it. I hated it. It was like all of these people who'd been working in union – working for their pension. We had lunch at the same time every day. And the culture was just not what was going to help me thrive. And people were talking about how miserable they were and the days they were counting to retirement. And I thought, this can't be what I enter into. <laughs> this can't. So I was sitting at my office one day. This was in the old campus that overlooked Olympic Plaza. And these people were out on scaffolds doing restoration of the stonework. And I was like, that's what I really want to do. I want to be working in construction outside wearing Carhartts, like heart and soul. That's what I want to do. So I went out yeah. at lunch and I asked them, because I have been to the Taj Mahal, the pyramids and Chichen Itza, and I'm fascinated by stone architecture. And I wanted to know how to do it. And they told me about the apprenticeship program and they told me about SAIT and they told me how to become a journeyman. I made a phone call. There happened to be this quota to get women in the program. They rushed me through without having any hours. And I changed my career to become a tile setter and stone worker. And I took an 80% pay cut. So I had to stay working there teaching night classes. And mm. the first company I started was called Steel Toe Stiletto. And it's because I was wearing steel toes during the day for construction, would take my Volkswagen Golf to the parkade at Bow Valley College, change into stilettos, baby wipe my face of the concrete off it, put my hair in like a top knot and run up and teach night school. And so Steel Toe Stiletto is the name of my company from that time and that foundation being built. I transitioned then to work in the trades full time. Thereafter, I was given a contract with SATE for almost five years to teach the apprenticeship program and help take the curriculum over to a blended learning. So I got to really blend what I loved to do. That didn't come without its own challenges, um, being in that environment being a right. young woman rushed into the trades versus people who've worked their entire lives in it. And they had much more skill and value than I had. Um, and you can't fake it. You have to put right. in the time. So it felt awkward at times. However, I pushed through um, until I was surprisingly pregnant with my now almost 13 year old son. And I read the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, and it says when you're 12 weeks, tell your boss you're pregnant, and I did, and uh, he said, pack your tools, you're done. Um, it, was, it was just not something that was going to work out, and so I thought Service Canada would have my back, and this was a labor issue. You know, I had a degree. I know this labor stuff, and it turns out it wasn't. There'd been something in the clause that had been exempt. If you're a woman in manufacturing or construction, you could be let go for being pregnant and you were just disabled. That's what they told me. Just go file for disability. So this seemed outrageous. I then started wondering why the industry stayed at like three to 4% women since the seventies. And I was like, I think mm -hmm. I know if you leave, you don't yeah. want to come back. <laughs> so right, I started right. focusing on successful entrepreneurs and being like, well, what made them stay? And I thought, well, you must have to own the business or mm -hmm. be very business savvy um, if you want to make it in this space. So I started a project called Women in Work Boots. I interviewed 100 women who work and I just collected some themes and uh, put it out there as a movement, a network. And, you know, business wise, it's the first mistake I made. I didn't really know how to monetize. I didn't know. I thought I was doing good. Um, yeah. I also was doing this while having a baby <laughs> and mm -hmm. this got really popular. Um, it was used across Canada. I was going back and forth to Ottawa to speak at different things for women's groups, uh, women in trades, women in STEM. 
and it got exhausting because it's kind of an uphill fight. Mm -hmm. So the first week of July, 2015, three things happen. My ex-husband coached hockey, so his schedule was all over the place. We had two sons yeah. at this point, under two years old, um, was their age difference. And I was really going on these projects. My mind never stopped. And he was yeah. away, so we used au pairs, um, international exchange students, to help us with the kids. They would move in, um, immerse with the family, want to learn English. All of them came through an agency, and they all had early childhood education credentials from where they were from. So we had 10 over the years. It was incredible because I was an au pair in France and in Italy when I was in my early 20s and it was life shaping. So yeah. I wanted to share that. But the first week of July 2015, three things happened. So with my stigma stomping work, women in construction, I thought, why wouldn't we hire a male? I have two sons. The agency has males. Um, they have the credentials. Why not? Yeah. And it worked until somebody had their own personal issue. And what we uncovered was the mail that we had, we had to send him home on voyeurism because he put hidden cameras on me in our home. He was photographing me in our bedroom while I was changing. He developed a fascination with me. And when I uncovered it, it had been going on for a while. So this was 10 years after Korea. This was me deciding this story was never going to come out. This was me having lied to my parents and told them this didn't happen. And then I was faced with a situation that inside that owl voice I heard, are you ready to address this now? And I'd been stuffing so much for so long. Women in Work Boots, which was used in 200 schools across the country. Stephen Harper made it a movement of status of women nationally. Um, I was really advocating for amending the Maternity Leave Act, which did end up happening um, with support yeah. of many people. Bill C-243. Um, Women in Work Boots then got hacked by Viagra ads and was firewalled from every program it was used in. So how randomly <laughs> that happens, I don't know. So I uncovered yeah. the voyeurism. I now have no job to go back to. I have no childcare. And a man that I met in recovery who's now in his 80s was a Korean war vet. I met him at this small group that we went to. We'd been friends for nine years. Uh, just in this program, you do service work and you connect with people and you help them out when they're down and out. Yeah. And he called me every day for nine years until I didn't hear from him for three days. And I couldn't get a hold of him. He only had a landline in his apartment. I called a police check on him. He was curled up in the fetal position in bed. And I was there when the police went in. He was in so much pain. And he looked at me. I have it on a voice recording on my phone because I recorded it. And he said, Jill, there was a picture of these clouds on the wall. And he said, the clouds opened up and they said, you're wanted in heaven. And they showed me a picture of you taking me to the hospital and I never get out. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. Let's just get in the car and we'll go check this out. And we went to the yeah. ER foothills and the ER doctor said to me, he showed me an x-ray and he said, Jilly's got cancer in every part of his body. Um, he has less than four months to live and he will not be leaving this hospital. He's also signed over that you're his next of kin and to make all the end of life decisions, what do you want to do? And I was like, what? I didn't have to sign this too. He just signed this. This is, we're starting this now. Like, I don't even know where my kids are going to be tonight. What do you mean he's not coming home? Do yeah. I, he's been in his apartment for 35 years. Like everything just started to tornado. So that year it did happen the way the ER doctors said, and it did happen the way he imagined it. He died in my arms in the Sarsi hospice less than four months later. I, then experienced the metaphor of living death. And yeah. I experienced this things die, ideas die, dreams die, death of a dream. Grief is living. Grief is real. Um, mm -hmm. And not knowing what to do is the greatest 
gift that you can be given living because it means mm -hmm. something else has to happen and you need mm -hmm. to listen very carefully within for what those next steps are because if you go to a place of logic when somebody's dying or when something is being taken away from you or when you're losing something you didn't want to lose like a wife or a relationship or a child um you need to feel through that and societally mm -hmm. we have made death a thing that we're okay talking about after right right past tense he died but what about mm -hmm. this is dying this idea mm -hmm. is dying this idea yeah. you've had that you are forcing and trying to control is dying. Mm -hmm. um, this person is actually dying. So after that, I decided I really wanted to dive into this notion of death work because mm -hmm. I found a lot of comfort being with him in the hospice for the last breath. It was actually, I'm just remembering this right now. He had a heart attack at Peter Lougheed and I was with him and I've never mm -hmm. seen somebody have a heart attack where their body, they come completely out of their body. And then he was gone and the bells were ringing and the nurses were running in and they said, Jill, it's now time. We're going to call the ambulance for the transfer. And he told me he never wanted to go to hospice. And then in walks my friend, Paul, who I went to high school with and he's the ambulance transfer guy. And this was sent for me to be okay in this period in between, I believe. And yeah. then um, Chuck was taken to the hospice, unconscious. He was wearing nothing but the hospital gown. There was nothing left at the hospital. And we got to the hospice. He got into the room. I arrived. He was tucked in. He looked like he was gone but he wasn't quite mm -hmm. and then he yeah. woke up and he looked at me and he asked me to turn off the dim lit desk light that was there and turn on the pot lights and I was like what like it's so peaceful and those are fluorescent yeah. but it was his last ask of me and then he looked at the pot light directly into the light and he went And that for me, he saw it. He saw it when the clouds opened and he said the light was so bright. And that for me was this absolute affirmation that there's something else. Okay. There's a knowing before, there's somewhere we go, there's somewhere we all go. Yeah. Organized belief and religion removed, there's somewhere we all go. And that's become the journey since then. So I went to a Christian um, university program here. And I did another degree, a bachelor's of arts in counseling that was more aligned with Christian counseling, but I wanted to tune into that spiritual piece. What is it about spiritual counseling that in recovery programs is this miracle globally yeah. that people have yeah. this awakening from? And what is it about something that just changes your mind and then you're different. What is this? And how yeah. can we tune into all the organized belief systems and see what that is? And that's what I'm doing from now on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with you. There is something about spirituality. It's something I'm trying to figure out too. Um, you know, becoming a therapist, it's kind of, the more I read about it, I realize that, you know, a lot of the times it brings people reprieve when they're able to look at something bigger than themselves and and there's so much peace that comes with it and that's kind of been my personal journey over the last year too so um but thank you for sharing that i know it was difficult talking through it so um so thank you and focusing on that like how has that been for you in your own journey like kind of coming to terms with this idea of we can call it whatever it is, but just tuning into that spirituality for yourself in terms of the work you're doing, where you are in your own personal life um, and, and everything else you do. 
my big goal in doing this degree was that I never got to go to the final weeks of my last one. And I wanted to bring to completion in presence, in presence yeah. with myself, in being present there, um, this completion piece. And when I graduated, I thought <laughs> I would have something figured out. And I remember at the end of the uh, program, it was another undergrad. I ended up with a Bachelor of Arts in Counseling that I was like, I don't know. Like, all I know is I don't know. <laughs> At the end yeah. of this, I know less than I did when I started. Um, I know there's parts that make me fighty. I get really fighty. Um, it boils up inside because I'm like, I don't know if we swear here, but I'm like, bullshit. That's bullshit. Like, I just know like that. What you think that is, is not true. That is, there's no possible way. And I know you've been doing it for all these years. And I know we've collectively agreed that this is the way and, uh, I don't know about that. So that's how it's rolling out with that kind of lens on things where I'm looking at, you know, I was raised in um, a community that was pacifist. We identified as Mennonite. It was um, old order around us in rural Ontario and Kitchener and St. Jacobs and Elmira and people with the same last name as me still ride horse and buggy. The women are still not allowed to go to school. My maiden name is Martin. And women are still not allowed to go to school past a certain age because it's dictated by the men in the community. There's organized marriage. There's um, lack of exposure to the outside world. And some of these things are great. And some of them are incredibly concerning. And I wanted to challenge some of the belief systems I was taught. And then the things I've seen from traveling, the things that became knowings like like, like yeah. those pictures I was raised with on the wall of Jesus being this super white guy with blue eyes and blonde hair to fit into how everybody else looked. Probably not true. You know? Right. So it was just going through pages and pages of like, huh, is that really? No, 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 no. It can't be that. And so yeah. I feel like that's what it's set forth. And what that's looked at is what is the role of patriarchy? What is this hierarchical system? What is this modeling? What mm. did this belief system actually come out of? Why is the Canadian government still in bed with the Catholic Church? And we choose on our taxes either public school or separate school and only one organized religion that claims to represent Christians the 3,800 other denominations, they don't mm. get the benefit of subsidized schooling system. Like these questions are really important to me now. And these questions are about inclusivity. These questions are about who's been exclusive and excluded and why. Um, yeah. These questions are around what was the power and control agenda or taxation agenda for that to be put in place? And how has that shaped men in our society now? How has that right. shaped men in our society with what they say and how they say it and how they behave and what they choose to do for work? There's more to all this. And right. when I was doing this program, I did a practicum and employment at a men's treatment center here in Calgary, um, Fresh Start. It's an incredible program. And it has helped thousands of men recover. Mm -hmm. And what I really felt there was living forgiveness. I heard things that were painful and wounding and scarring and horrific about things that happened to men at the hands of other men or people. And I never really thought about it from that perspective when I was in the lifestyle and when I was giving my power away. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help but want to forgive any man who crossed my path who hurt me because I suddenly was going through the lens of, well, maybe they were only doing the best they could with what they had and they mm -hmm. saw the world through having to be forcefully powerful and it actually doesn't align with them. And that tension caused that playing out of their behavior that then resulted in us having our paths crossed. Right. 
and it probably hurt them at some point as much as it hurt me. Mm -hmm. And all I could do was surrender that and pray for them. And that shocked me. And then my journaling started to reflect things like I suddenly wrote letters that were like, thank you for raping me. Because mm. I learned that that was my rock bottom. I learned at the hands of you holding me down that I could only rise if I mm. was to get out of that situation by having faith that there's another way. Right. I know what happens if I recycle and repeat the same patterns and behaviors and put myself in the same environments with the same people and the same lifestyle with the same drugs and the same alcohol and the same small conversations about things that don't matter. Right. Yeah. And I want to choose a different way. And I want to align with people who are choosing a different way. And it turns out we're going to have to all be outside of these small communities and small organized belief systems and groups that we're in if we're really going to come together and make meaningful change. Because it's not about getting smaller and smaller and it's not about closing the doors and it's not about having secret societies and it's not about having secret services and excluding genders. That's not helpful. None of that's helpful. It's about right. looking at some bigger principles. For sure. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're stronger when we're working together. And unfortunately, people have lost that way of thinking right now. And uh, we're seeing the consequences of that, too. So, so yeah, um, I, I do. I did want to ask you, because you mentioned previously that, you know, the stuff that happened in Korea and then things that happened later on, as you mentioned, in 2015, and that was stuff that you probably didn't want to share. Why is it important for you to speak openly about those things um, now or, or even you sharing mm -hmm. them meaningfully? That's a double-edged sword. Let me tell you that. So you and I both like Rumi. The wound is where the light enters, right? Uh, it's coined to him sometimes and other people, but... In some paraphrasing, transcribing way that serves me right now, that's the line. So if I look at that and I look at being cracked open um, and I look at that vulnerability of looking at that place, a wound's a wound and it needs to close. Mm -hmm. And that wound had to c come open to get some different healing so it could close again. And right now with the development of Owlseek is the closing. Because mm -hmm. why I say double-edged sword is opening this, it was like, you need to step into this. This is the hearing, the calling I'm hearing. You need to step into this. You need to heal this. You need to share this with other people. You need to let people in Calgary know that when you were ready to go for therapy, you went to CASA, Calgary, Association for Sexual Assault, and they told you it was a nine-month wait list. You need to advocate for more funding because you have a voice and we'll give you a platform. And these mm -hmm. kind of things worked, but keeping them open hasn't served me. And so Owl right. Seek and writing this book I'm writing right now called Knowings is about closing the principles and closing the door on them. I look at it in my head like it's um, this A-frame library in there, and it's full of books. And sometimes I take these books down that are stories of my past. And sometimes I get messy and I leave them open all over the floor and the table up there. And yeah. that mess of open books, it's just all of these open stories, open wounds. And so right now I'm closing them and I'm kind of writing over them what was the lesson in all of that. And that's what brought me to really dive into the work of the map of consciousness with Dr. David Hawkins and we both talked about this book, Power Versus Force. Um, I know you yeah. read it last week. And um, that, that map of consciousness, that line that showed me words that align with either a state of victimhood or having the courage to shift, to be willing to think something else, that started to make sense to me in a different way. And then I went, mm -hmm. what is the outcome of these stories? And I turned my own journey and my own path and my own 
you know, I've been with my counselor, Arthur, for nine years. Um, soon, he will be like the longest term relationship I've had in a very safe way. I'm not crossing any lines. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not had the opportunity to dive deep with anyone like I have with him. And the learnings that I've had from that and the learnings of how lots of things societally want us to keep those open because it's convenient to consider our healthcare system is the only way and get stuck in a long process of waiting or just shutting down because you don't want to wait and then you don't deal with it. I think that this closing of pieces now, which is just something I'm coming out of. Um, for the last seven years, I've talked about this. For the first 10 years of my recovery, I didn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I kept it tight. And I operated like somebody who was just modeling the macho society around me. Um, yeah. I was in construction and then I was in the hockey culture. And then I was raising sons in hockey culture and I didn't know how to do it. So I just modeled everybody else. I still do. Um, <laughs> I just put it on. And right. these kind of things, I sit back in the library in my mind and I open and close the books and I go, is that something to keep telling or is that something to close? And what are you going to write moving forward? And this, this stuff of writing now, I've extracted seven spiritual principles from his list of many. And yeah. this is what I live in and this is what I teach and this is what I believe in and this is what I walk every day and this is what I walk people through and it works. Going from a path of fear to love, um, walking through those places like, what am I so afraid of? And there's, right. a, there's an exercise that they do in the 12-step programs that, has you look at your fear and it's some of the best workbook um, spreadsheet like right. activity to dive into like, what is this really about? Is this about my fear of image, my fear of money, my fear of shame, my fear of sex, my fear of not being good enough? Like we don't talk about this stuff together. We just say no. like, oh, fear, like shut it down. But yeah, there's some deep dive stuff we can do. So coming out of fear, looking at where you're prideful, looking at where your ego is running the show, looking at the mask, looking at that dual life, that duplicit self. Um, people live in that all the time. You know, I'm staring out here at big towers downtown and people who lead in this way from a place of fear, try to control everything. I was talking with somebody today who has a female leader who just, I call it patriarchal puppetry, like just models this old school way of leadership and it doesn't fit. It's just this like chirping of a style she learned under probably. Um, mm -hmm. And how do we soften that and align it and make it real? How do we soften it in men that it doesn't work for? How do we soften it in people who are finding their identity and belonging in looking at their gender right now? Where do we make yeah. room for opening that? Yeah. And I, I mean, to your point, you, acknowledging that it is a double edged sword, but as you also mentioned previously, keeping it a secret likely would have had the story would have had more power over you. Right. And, and by speaking your truth again, fully understanding that often there can be circumstances you're taking your power back and, and, and obviously even I've talked about this before, shame also thrives on secrecy right so oh yeah yeah you're sick so. as your secrets you're as sick as your secrets mm -hmm. yeah yeah have I your think, um, i think there's a line i use too is this helpful or harmful and at mm. the 10 year mark for myself in recovery it was helpful to talk about this stuff and now i right. have to look at the same stories at a new time and it's harmful it's harmful to tell them in the same way. It doesn't serve me and it doesn't serve others the same. And I think we need right. more permission to look at our life and say, you know, what worked for me seven years ago doesn't work for me. And even though I said it and even though I stamped it and some people like to like they've got it in a stone scroll, you know, they believe it's the be all end all. Mm -hmm. No, it changes. 
and allow your perspective time to change. Allow right. yourself to go, this may have been helpful then, but this is super harmful now. And mm -hmm. that's that double-edged sword. Is it helpful or harmful? Because it can be both and, and you better be careful. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, we do evolve, right? So mm -hmm. what worked for us, even I look at two years ago and, and the things like I, how I approach things today is completely different. So um, we do evolve as people and, and we just need to have compassion for ourselves and, and others acknowledging that we're all changing over time. So, so yeah, um, Jill, I, I want to thank you for coming on here and sharing your story. Thank you so much for being vulnerable and being so open. Um, for, for listeners that want to get a hold of you or want to learn more about Owlseek, what are some ways they can do that? Yeah, owlseek.ca is where things are living online right now. Um, following me on Instagram is the best day-to-day -day way to follow me. So under my name, Jill Drader, and from there you can link to the Owlseek method. And I'm writing a book that's coming out talking about these seven spiritual principles to a life of certainty, to getting to that other side of knowing, you know, what you need to do. And that is also going to be linked there. So I'll be doing pre-sales for that soon, workshops coming up. Uh, this course is starting next week. And then I'm going to be doing a course that blends who you are and what you do uh, with business startup as more of the focus. So that's going to be starting up in February. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'll link, put all that stuff in the, the show notes. Uh, this will probably be coming out later in February, but uh, I'm sure people can find all, totally. everything else <laughs> if they want to. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for yeah. doing this. Thank you for opening the conversation. Thank you for reaching out. And thank you for being one of the brave people who's having these conversations, truly. Yeah, no, I, I mean, my job's easy just here listening. So, <laughs> uh, but I do appreciate that. So thanks. And, and I'm sure we'll be talking more. For sure. Thank you for checking out this episode with Jill. As always, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or leave a comment in the comment section. I always love hearing from you. Until next week.